1: Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur, because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion. Jim Beach.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of school for startups radio it's Monday, February 26th. and we have an absolutely cram packed show. We need to get started immediately. First up, we have an amazing sales expert in just a second. And then after that, we're going to talk about the environment, anthropology, a lot of great stuff with Alan McCowan. So it's a great big show. We're going to go ahead and get started right now. Our first guest today is Michael Hinkle. He is author of a new book called Treasure Hunt, A Common Sense Approach to Building a Successful Sales Career. He did have a very successful sales career himself. He was vice president of sales at a Fortune 500 company and now is helping others. He has a consulting company called JBI, which is based out of Los Angeles, does sales consulting and coaching in the business space.
0: Michael Hinkle, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome today. How about yourself?
2: Well, I don't know if I'm awesome. I, I, I'm having a good day, but tonight it ain't awesome. I'm. <laughs> oh, you'll make it awesome, though. How about that? There you go.
0: I can live with that.
2: All right. Big difference between a sales career and a sales
0: job, isn't there? Yes, it is night and day. What's the difference? I'm- Oh, I've never had a a job. I've always had a career. Oh, I Um, love that line. Keep going. um, Yeah, I uh, focused on, despite the fact I worked for bigger organizations, I focused on the fact that I was building my own business. I knew that as I amassed my uh, skills in my career and and developed uh, my business, that if I didn't work from a process of being totally vested in it, um, that lack of sincerity would come through. And if I'm going to build something for someone, I want to make sure that I have my name on it. And in order to have my name on it, I got to make sure that I take some form, a sense of ownership, some pride of ownership in it. So again, I've never had a J O B. I've always had a career.
2: I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, some industries are super small, right? For example, radio is a small industry. I know most of the people. Is sales like that or when you leave, say you're selling photocopiers and then you go off and sell cars or airplanes, you're selling to a totally different people. Does your reputation follow you from photocopiers to airplanes? You know what I mean? If you go from one tech company to another tech company, does it matter if you have a career attitude? I'm going to switch industries every two or three years. It doesn't matter.
0: No, it doesn't because your brand stays your brand stays true to you. If your brand is that you are are, our service above all else, if you put your customer first in everything you do doesn't matter whether you're selling widgets, computers, airplanes or um, bus board billboards. You know, it doesn't matter. It, 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 if your brand is that you take everything with a sense of pride, you approach your work ethic with with a strong commitment to excellence, and you treat your clients um, better than, than they pay you for. In other words, um, if I could pick just a scenario, let's say you offer me $5 to do a job. My goal is to give you a $10 job and collect my $5, my $5 fee. I don't want to deliver the bare minimum. I want to deliver more than the minimum because that's the way you become a raving fan of mine. And again, the product doesn't matter if I take that approach into every situation I go into, regardless of the product type. So you can change it all you want.
2: All right. Has sales changed in the last 20, 30 years? Have we Finally as an industry gotten away from what do you want, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want?
0: I hope so, but I don't think so. That's the reason that my I decided to put this book out. Is there's nothing in my book that's new and revolutionary. All of it's old tried and true stuff that's been around for years and that the excellent salespeople have been using over and over again. Um the the problem is is that people have become so insensitive and so all-consuming in their own needs that a salesperson nowadays is sitting around waiting for someone to provide the lead for them they simply call up and take fill out the order form and then they expect to get a huge commission well in that sense i'm not paying you to really do anything you know you're taking my lead i provide you and you're closing the deal, and I don't need to pay you a premium for doing that. I need to pay you a maintenance fee. Whereas if you're a salesperson, and you can bring your own business through the door because people are seeking you out as someone to do business with, that's a value to a business owner. That's someone that's a co-owner with them when they take their business that serious.
2: Farmer versus hunter, isn't it? Farmer versus hunter, yes.
0: Explain, please um a and there's a there's a purpose for each one of those people in the business i might add farmers are people that have a tendency to do exactly that they wait around um they maintain existing relationships they're good at nurturing the continuation of the business um but they don't do well in a situation where they actually walk into the room create, uh, analyze the needs, and create a, a demand for your service or product. Hunters are people that, that analyze the market, see situations, go out and create needs um, based and, and solve problems for people based on what they see coming down the pipe. One of the things that I've used throughout my whole career is that I've always taken a look at what the future is bringing our way, and I try to stay on top of trends and situations that are brewing. I worked a majority of my career in the real estate field. In fact, I worked all my career in the real estate field uh, with the exception of a couple of years for a county organization. But the one thing I always paid attention to was economic changes that were coming down the road. If I had a client that was predominantly doing business a certain way and I could see that the the, the economy was changing and, and taking that client, leaving them in a situation where they're volume was going to drastically reduce or even disappear on them. I needed to be prepared to step up and find the next niche that I needed to work on to maintain myself during these turns in the market In the real estate industry. We have turns in the market every so often that can be very drastic for people that aren't paying attention to what's going on.
2: Yeah. The real estate industry is always up and down as a tangent Do you think the recent court ruling about the standard 6% real estate commission is going to affect the real estate industry?
0: It's going to be difficult for people that don't have their skills set up. Um, that that don't treat this like it's their own company, that don't treat this like this is something they need to provide. When you question your own value and you don't give any sense of worth to what it is you bring to the table, the first thing people are always going to negotiate is what it costs them to use you. If you provide enough service and you create enough value into what it is you're providing, people don't care what they pay you. They're paying you to accomplish the task. And if you do that well, can you give them a purpose to want to pay you by providing excellent service and getting things done? Don't wait for things to go wrong. Conquer problems before they occur and take credit for it. Um, you know, they they never negotiate your price when you do that. They only negotiate your price when they feel like they didn't get what they deserved.
2: I'll tell you, the last time I bought a house, Michael, or actually I should say the last time my wife bought a house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd give the guy 13%. Exactly. Because he did such a good job. I'll tell you, briefly tell you the story. We put an offer on, I I told my wife, I will look at one house. I'm not going to play the game. You know, I will look at just one house. And so she brought me to see the one house and I loved it. We made an offer a couple of weeks later, got a, or a call from, it was actually Easter morning from the homeowner saying that she got a better offer. I was like, well, ma'am, you know, we have a contract signed contract and it doesn't you know, really matter if you got a better offer. We have a contract. And she said, get ready for this, Michael. I'm 80. I'm a widow. Sue me. <laughs> well, at this point, Michael, I'm 47 years old and I have moved my family into my parents' house. Another thing my wife did, she sold our existing house without asking me. I got off an airplane and she was there to meet me. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, something's happening. Something, I'm either getting divorced, she's pregnant, I don't know what's happening. My wife doesn't meet me at the airport unless something bad's (laughs) happening, you know? And so she had sold the house while I was gone. And so we had to move into my parents and there's nothing more cool than living with your parents when you have four kids and are 47 years old. You know what I mean? And so That's- we were desperate. And so anyway, the agent found a, put a note in the mailbox, two houses down from the house that we had just lost. Those people called an hour later. By 3 o'clock on Easter, we were under contract on a new house, different house. Excellent. So for six whole hours, we were living in chaos. But our guy you know, was able to solve the problem. He really, really, really stepped up. And so you're right. If you do the extra, I don't care what you're charging.
0: Right. You don't. People don't. People pay. There's a reason that Nordstrom's does well and that Walmart does well. They both sell a very similar product when it comes to a men's shirt. Your expectations at Walmart are one thing. Your expectations at Nordstrom's are completely something different.
2: What are the treasure hunting basics? Back to your book, the title, Treasure Hunt, A Common Sense Approach to Building a Successful Sales Career. You talk in the book about the treasure hunting basics. Can you go through that, please,
0: Mike? Sure. Um, the, the, the basics are you can't let negative attitudes or negative impressions of your workday get underneath your skin. Um, ours is when you choose a career in sales, you need to acknowledge that you've decided that you think it's more fun to drive 100 miles an hour without a seatbelt on and wreck your car many times. And you're never going to really get hurt because <laughs> it just, it's just not going to happen. That's sales in a nutshell. Every day I, wa- I wake up, I have a positive attitude. I have never answered the question, how are you doing with anything other than awesome? Because that's how I'm going to start my day. That's how I'm going to end my day. My day is not always awesome. I get told no a lot. Um, and you know, no, it's not the right time. No, I'm not you're not right for me, no, this, no that. I never let it get under my skin. I don't let it affect me. I always approach it with that's a fantastic answer. And if I think that we can change that no to something else, I work on that. And if not, I move on to the next client because I know that there is a number out there for me that if I talk to X number of people, I am going to do X number of deals. So everybody that tells me no is helping me get to a payday.
2: I love that attitude. That is, I think the requirement for being an entrepreneur salesperson or dating, you know, you only (laughs) have to have one girl say yes, Mike, you know, you don't (laughs) want to marry five of them. You want one of them to say yes, you know, I can barely it, handle her, much less another or three more, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I think that if you're good at being an entrepreneur, you end up being really good at dating, too. What do you think on my crazy idea?
0: I, I, you're, you're spot on. Why is it that the, sometimes you see the best-looking girl in the room is attached to not necessarily the best-looking guy in the room? Because he's That's funny. He's funny, he reached out. he knew how to he knew how to reach her. He knew how to deal with her and get um you know, get the get the right string of words put together to attract her attention.
2: Yeah, I've been married twice and dated a long time, and I married two hot women, and I'm not good looking. I'm bald and you know. yeah. Uh, but I married hot women and dated really well. Um, because I'm willing to ask 50 girls out, you know, and once you get that attitude, you don't need 50. That attitude, I think, changes you. and makes you sexier or the product better in the first place. You agree?
0: You have a sense of confidence to you, and it's hard to say no to somebody that's confident and believes in what they're talking to you about.
2: That's very true. I know I'm going to show you a good evening. Yeah, exactly. That's right. not the question
0: gatekeepers
2: how do i know if i've got the right person to say yes
0: well gatekeepers are the bread and butter to a sales career their job is to prevent you from accessing their bosses that need to be the ones that make the decision as to whether or not you're going to work with them um so They, you know, you can go in and get frustrated with the fact that they're deterring you from getting to where you want to be, or you can go in with a approach of, I need to get this person to help me achieve what I need to achieve. Mm. And the best way to do that is to find a way and, um, make her look good to Mm. her boss or him. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, I didn't mean to assume anything, but to make that gatekeeper look good to their boss, him or her. And the way you do that is by respecting their time, respecting their skills, and asking them for help. Worst case scenario, I have changed uh, gatekeeper's opinions of me simply by continuing to be polite to them regardless of what they're doing to me, no matter, no matter what the obstacle they put in my, in my way. I deal with it in a professional manner, and I'm constantly going back and asking them for their help. A great line I use all the time, especially the first time I see a new gatekeeper, I'll walk in and I'm an old time salesperson. So I don't have a problem walking through a door of a prospect and, and and asking to see them without an appointment. I think that appointments are just an opportunity for them to shut you down early. So I'd rather if they're going to shut me down, I'd rather do it to my face. So I'll go in and see if I could catch somebody. And by knowing that I'm doing that, I tend to spend a lot of time being very careful about their schedule. So when I get to a gatekeeper and ask to speak to someone and, and they're, they're looking at me and they go, you don't have an appointment. What are you thinking? Great. How would I go about getting an appointment with your boss? Do I need to email them? Do I have to work through you? Do I have to give them a call? What's the best way and when's the best time to do it? Not every one of them is going to help you out with that, but you'd be surprised how many of them will help you understand the best way to get to their boss and the best way for you to communicate your message. Makes them look good. They're doing their job, and when you finally connect with their boss, their boss is going to be happy about the way you, as the gatekeeper, protected them from, from nonsense that they didn't want to deal with.
2: So we already talked a little bit about no and getting objections. How do I overcome that? You mentioned move on sometimes, and you said sometimes you can change the no. How do I change no to
0: yes? Well, the first, the first thing to know about the word no is it's, it's not in your vocabulary. If you're in sales, you don't use the word no. You never use it when you're talking to your clients, and you never hear it when they're talking to you. If someone uses the word no with me rather quick in the process, I automatically default to the thought process that these people are simply trying to find a way to avoid further conversation with me on this particular subject. Um, you know, what I mean is I can come up to you and ask, here's a great one. You're in a car lot. Car salesman walks up to you and says, can I help you? And you say no. Well, why are you on a car lot? Obviously you're thinking about buying a car so was that kind of a stupid question for the salesperson to ask you can I help you or should would a better response put us be a situation where they asked a question where no wasn't the correct response so if you form if you formulate your questions and develop a process where you're making it difficult for them to use the word no" when they do use it you can st- Step back for a second and take a look at it and say, okay, what's the real objection here? Are they saying no to stop me from talking further? Are they saying no, not now? Are they saying no, never? You've got to explore that a little bit. That's why you can't just let no stop you. It's the same thing with pricing.
2: What's the, before you go into that, what's the best question on the car sales lot? Do you like that car? What kind of car are you looking for? What is the best first line?
0: Is there information I could share with you about our makes and models? I okay. mean, I've yep. a lot. Herman, you know this. This is what I do. I can fill you in on what what they've got, what they don't, what they don't have. Can you give me a couple of features you're thinking about? You really need, and I can point you in the direction of some that might fill that need. In other words, provide service. Be the information source. Be the be the guy that's helping them make their decision, not the guy that's trying to get them to make a decision. Huge difference. I like that. Statements. Yeah. Uh,
2: also, in your book, you talk about following the crowd. I love this topic because entrepreneurs, I don't think, should ever follow the crowd, always go in the other direction. How does that relate to sales?
0: 100%. It's, it, 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 you have to do that. If you want to excel in your craft, you have to do what other people aren't doing. You, you can't, you can't be the, the one in the back matching everybody else's service. And I can give you an example of that. Ooh. If I'm, uh, if, and let's say that I, I'm, I'm, let's say that I want to sell you a yellow widget. Okay. And everybody in the world is selling yellow widgets. And I walk up to you and I try to sell you a yellow widget using the same approach that everybody else that's tried to sell you a yellow widget has used. I'm not going to be very successful because they've already learned how to not buy a yellow widget when they don't want one. Or if they do want one, it's a one-time sale because somebody else is going to walk through the door later. However, if I develop a process where I walk in with my yellow widget and explain to you how yellow widget's make you look sexier and more attractive to your wife, for example, you're going to have more interest in what I've got to say about yellow widgets than the last 15 guys that walked through the room trying to sell you that yellow widget. So I have to develop a a process by where I'm not just trying to sell you a product. I'm trying to sell you a, a problem resolution issue. I'm trying to sell you something that's going to help you achieve your stated goals and your unstated goals. I can't be focused on um, trying to do the same thing everybody else is doing. I have to do it better, faster, and greater than everybody else. I want to be the guy that's got the target on his back instead of the guy that's got the target on his front because sales management needs to trim down the sales force of who's it going to be.
2: The book is Treasure Hunt, A Common Sense Approach to Building a Successful Sales Career. The author, Michael Henkel, Mike, I heard you were willing to play our game, the quick 10. Yeah, I yeah. am. All right. Are you currently sober? I am required by state law to ask. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, you don't have to be sober. I just need to know. Do you want to stop and wait until you're not sober? We can do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, give me about, well, hang on. Five I, minutes. I, some yeah, shots. Well, we do shots, so, you know, it might be less. <laughs> uh, do
2: you want to accept the standard wager? The standard wager.
0: Sure. What is the standard wager?
2: The bet that everyone else is brave enough to make? Yeah. All right. Number one, your favorite creativity hack?
0: Um, since I just wrote a book, I got to tell you that ghostwriters are number one.
2: Number two, favorite bootstrapping trick? Um, uh, make
0: a call to a new client. Number three, name your top passions. Learning, coaching, negotiating, problem-solving, and happy hour. (laughs)
2: Uh, Number four, the first three steps in starting a
0: business are? Investigate the needs of the public, create a niche, and start moving forward.
2: Number five, the best way to get your first real customer is?
0: Keep turning over stones.
2: Number six, your dreamiest
0: technology is? Smartphones, I loved them. I started sales when we were using pagers.
2: Number seven, best entrepreneurial advice?
0: Never stop learning and growing.
2: Number eight, worst entrepreneurial mistake?
0: Uh, being happy with where you're at. Never lean on your elbows.
2: Number nine, favorite entrepreneur and why?
0: Thomas Edison. He figured out how it did not work until it did and never gave up. Number 10, favorite superhero. Um, going to qualify this one first. Been married for 35 years, raised three kids, single moms. We, I, we raised three kids with a wife of 35 years, and it was, a, it was a tough job. I can't imagine somebody trying to be in a, career, a sales career and a single mom at the same time. She gets she, my hat is tipped to her.
2: I have to agree. Great answer. Michael, fantastic stuff. While we calculate your score and find out the winner of the wager, how do we get in touch? How do we get a copy of the book? How do we find out more about you?
0: Um, You can reach me at michaelhinkle.com. You can download a free chapter of my book there, if you like, and take a look at it. The book is available online at Amazon, Target, and Barnes and Noble. And um, if you can't come up with a way to invest $20 in yourself, so the pricing on it is very fair. I, 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 I'm not sure that you're thinking the right way. Um, my own personal challenge. But I think a $20, $20 investment in yourself to get better at what you choose to do is not an, an exorbitant amount of money to spend.
2: No, not at all. We spend, you should be spending a lot of money on making yourself better plastic surgery and <laughs> hair implants.
0: Anyway. But- I'd go broke medical-wise if we were trying to fix all of those problems.
2: Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm just sort of delaying. Michael, I just got given your score. Oh, oh, I'm so disappointed. Michael, you got a 94, which is an excellent, excellent score, but you have to have a 95 to win. So uh, you owe me a Tesla. We always play for a Tesla.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you watch for it in the parking lot, okay?
2: I'd like red, I'll- please.
0: <laughs> I'll have that sent directly over quite presently
2: (laughs) michaelhinkle.com treasure hunt a common sense approach to building a successful sales career michael thank you so much for being with us great stuff
0: thank you have a great day
2: you too and we will be right back to talk about the environment anthropology and dei we'll be right back We are back in still. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my next guest and next topic. Please welcome Alan McCowan to the show. He is author of a new book called The Political Activism of Anthropologist Franz Boas. He has had an amazing career, Alan, in the science and in particular physics. And in environmental studies, he is a lecturer now at the new school and has served as uh, significant roles in the administration there, primarily running their science department. Graduated from Yale, has worked extensively in helping connect la- uh, uh, journalists and scientists who are doing great research so that that research can get out there into the world. He is author of over 40 articles on the interconnections of science and society and technology in peer reviewed journals and the popular press as well. And he has also written over a hundred editorials for environmental magazine on of course, climate change. Welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well.
2: And how are you? I am well, thank you. So. Why is Franz Boas important? Tell us about the new book.
1: Okay, Franz Boas is important, I think, for three reasons. Uh, The first reason is that he was the first professional anthropologist to take on the issue of racial superiority, which is how I became interested in him. Um, I I started doing research on, on racial issues and all roads led to uh, Franz Boas. But he was also very politically active. He he aggressively opposed the entry of the United States into World War I, wrote many letters, made many speeches about that. And then in the 30s, he developed uh, an organization called the American Committee for Democracy and Intellectual Freedom, which defended the free speech rights of those people accused of left-wing communist uh, affiliations and so forth. So he, he, he used the strength of his uh, scientific reputation to be a politically active person and was one of the first scientists to do that. So I think he's a really important f- figure in the history of science and politics uh, writ large.
2: Yes, and what were his... Uh... What did his research show about racial superiority? I mean,
1: we know the... Well, his... Go ahead. His, his, his first research was when he was at Clark University. He took advantage of the immigrant population there to measure children of immigrants, showing that the their uh, living in the United States changed them. So it... It denied the notion of the fixity of the of the races, that is that the races were fixed in 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 genetics. and he went on to work for a thing called the Dellingham Commission, uh, an arm of Congress, and continue that work. Um, he was invited by w. e. B. Du Bois down to Atlanta University where he gave a talk extolling the past kingdoms in Africa um showing that they they were fully capable of having sophisticated civilizations and so forth so he would he, he 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 kept that on and it was one of his he thought it was one of his most important activities he died december 21 1942 after giving a speech honoring Paul Revae, who was uh, head of the Musée de L'Homme and was um, active uh, in, in the resistance to the Nazi party. And he, as he lay there dying, Ruth Bunzel, who was one of the students who was there, reports that he said, we have to do something about the race problem. So it was what he thought was very important.
2: And what do you think he would be saying about what's going on
1: today? He would be horrified. Um he he was a uh, pacifist and said many times, I am a pacifist, I oppose, oppose war of all kinds. Um he 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 would be horrified by what is going on in Ukraine, in the Middle East. He would be calling for ceasefires, he would be calling for stopping the war. He abhorred war.
2: I think we all do. I- I, I yes, but, we, but sometimes we. you have to fight a war, don't you? I mean I, I well, can't imagine what I, the I, world would look like without World War II, or Well, I think we fought some really very, stupid wars, but some of them I think had merit, no?
1: Well, I I would agree with that. And I think he would do he, he died in nineteen forty two, so it was, you know, early years. It it took him a little while. To recognize what was happening in his home, home country, uh, Germany, where he was born and grew up, um, but he, he ultimately then took a very strong stand against fascism and not Nazism. So he, 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 I, don't think, I, I, I don't see any evidence of him actually supporting the, the war in writing, but I think he did and would support the United States' entry into that war.
2: Right. Well, I th- I'm I'm not going to defend the wars since then. I think that we now right. seem like it's a Nor Do I? It's a, a hol- It's a a new president. We have to go start a new war. Uh, it seems
1: right. Right. Know? Yeah. It it seems like that's true.
2: And you know, Alan, I know that you're not a fan of Donald Trump, but at least <laughs> he didn't start any wars. Thoughts on that?
1: uh well at least he didn't start any wars but he's making threatening uh, remarks now about leaving nato and of allowing uh putin to do whatever the hell he wants to quote him um uh, without without any opposition from us okay so, so- i see that
2: and i'm not i'm not trying to defend trump here i'm just trying to defend uh an argument i I think that strong words like that uh, are maybe needed at some times. Some, and I'm not. In a, I'm not saying in this situation particularly, but sometimes we need to talk with a little bit of uh, verboseness and uh, strength just to maybe scare people away. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get into a political argument about what's going on today, but. I do think that uh, it's interesting that he didn't start any, get involved in any wars and that nothing major happened. Then I I'm a little bit of the the philosophy that peace happens when you're stronger. And I I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Alan?
1: Well, yeah, no, I agree. Peace starts when you're stronger. So NATO has been very strong, but, they, and but none of them are
2: paying their bills, and so why the hell should I well, pay if well, they're not
1: going to? Wait just a minute. First of all, they are paying some of their bills and Germany just came up to the 2% uh, of GDP that is a requirement and and others are, are doing the same. However, it is in America's interest that NATO be strong, that it keep the peace in Europe as it has done since NATO was formed. And remember, NATO is more than just a military alliance. It, it it has courses. It has schools. I've gone to uh, uh, courses that NATO has run. And it, it binds the the countries together. So, yeah, peace comes when you're strong. And NATO is strong. And weakening NATO is not anything that we should look forward to.
2: Well, I agree with that. I want them to play by the rules, though. And I'm tired of us playing or paying more Ooh. than... Uh, other countries.
1: We benefit benefit from that. That Pax Americana is to benefit America. The the structure that was put in place after World War II uh, by America and its allies has served us very well. The globalization of the economy, which that allowed, has benefited consumers and corporations in the United States big time.
2: Yes, I certainly agree with that. Um, what else do we need to know about Boaz? I, I was, when you start talking about race in the 1920s and 30s, I immediately go to eugenics. What were his thoughts on that?
1: He was, he was opposed to eugenics. He wrote one paper on the subject's. On the subject, he felt that eugenics was uh, phony science and he he didn't support the eugenics movement at all. Good.
2: I'm glad to hear that. That was one of the (laughs) dumbest things that ever came around. Some really smart people
1: got wrapped up in that. Right. Absolutely.
2: Alan, I know that you are very active in fighting for our environment. I am a... Uh, a landowner. I love land. Oh, I love the yeah. woods. I like clean right. air and water. I like to go to the <laughs> right. lake and enjoy it and know that it's clean. Uh, right. Our vacation right. house is on the cleanest lake in North America, we are told. And we have oh, all sorts really? of rules to protect it. Um, right.
1: Great. Great.
2: On the other hand, I am tired of being told we have five years oh. left. I've been told that since 1972, and I'm old enough to remember it. I feel like the environmental movement shoots itself in the foot just about every time it opens its mouth by making claims that are so over the top that when they don't happen, they look stupid. They haven't happened so many times that there's a large part of the population that tunes it out because... I remember in 1972 when I was told we had five years to live. You know, I mean, I'm I'm tired of hearing it. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think the environmental community ever said you were five years away from extinction. Well, not extinction. You know, the tipping point is five
2: years. They used, Alan, very, very scary words. Don't I mean, I'm not saying extinction, but the world is going to, they use words that they shouldn't
1: well okay so this is a a fairly complicated complex issue i agree i agree that the environmental community has to turn to looking at the positive side of environmental quality as you said you can enjoy the lake you can enjoy your land you can breathe the air on the other hand People have to realize that global heating, as some people call it, or global boiling, as as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, is really serious. It is, and the projections that have been made by the climate change community have all turned out to be correct. And the projections that the climate scientists have made have turned out to be correct. We are increasing the temperature of the planet in a way that is going to be quite dangerous and we have to do something about it the good news is we know what to do there are at least seven comprehensive plans that tell us how to use solar energy how to use wind how to use geothermal as well as some uh, social changes that will actually make the world a much better place
2: name one social change
1: Mass transportation. Supposing in Manhattan you banned private automobiles from Manhattan, you would have a bus system that could actually get you from one point to another with, um, without long delays, which is what you have now. So uh, a, a rapid increase in mass transportation would be a terrific thing to do. Investing in cleaner, more resilient buildings. Buildings are a big factor in the carbon dioxide emissions and we can do something about that.
2: Uh of these seven plans are any of them So I've interviewed a lot of people who have ideas about how to solve the problem but not through decreasing our consumption of energy but by other methods, but cool scientific ideas of and I I don't I'm I don't know what they are, but the ideas of putting stuff in the atmosphere so that it cools off a little bit or all sorts of other scientific ideas and solutions. Um things that they're doing with plastics and edible plastic and you know, I've interviewed a lot of great entrepreneurs who are coming up with solutions. I think, Alan, that the environmental movement is really hurting itself when it tries to Take stuff away as opposed to solving the problem, but letting us still have air conditioning right so if you come to me and say that the environment we're gonna solve the environmental problem by uh limiting your air conditioning i don't care i'm not gonna i I'd, I'd rather have air conditioning you know i that's not gonna live like that i couldn't I would sweat to death, and I think a lot of Americans are tired of uh you know just. Uh, the solution being a negative solution. Whereas I interview so many people who have positive solutions that don't invite, don't uh, make me give up my air conditioning and that they could do these cool things that would make the environment better, but not worry about some of the oil use. What are your thoughts on solving the problem without changing my personal lifestyle?
1: I don't think your personal lifestyle is at risk uh, if you look at it uh, sensibly. Yes, there are a number of innovations which would help us uh, survive in, in a global heating world. Uh, putting material up into the atmosphere is one. I happen to think that's a terrible idea. I do too, because I that, that could idea. that, that sounds could to me get like that really could, dangerous. That could get that could get out of out of hand very quickly. I agree. Um, on the other hand, carbon capture and storage, which means you take the carbon dioxide out of the stack gases as they are being emitted, and uh, carbonize them, make calcium carbonate out of them, and put them in the ground. Uh, is a very positive solution. It is quite expensive, and it itself takes a good deal of energy, and at some point, you're gonna run out of place to put the stuff. So it buys some time, but it does not change the fact that we need some fundamental changes. I'm not talking about your not having your air conditioning. I live in New York City. I couldn't live in the summer without air conditioning. I totally agree. But there are things that we could do. I think that electrifying automobiles, for example, is a very good technical solution. Because even if the electricity comes from fossil fuels, it is much more efficient than a uh, gasoline-driven car. Because you don't have a carburetor, you don't have gears, um, you don't have uh, 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 spark plugs. So it is much simpler so that and and we are moving look right now the cheapest way to for, to get electricity is through solar panels so it is it is social problems bureaucracy people not liking the look of wind turbines offshore for crying out loud that prevents us from implementing this stuff big time big scale well uh, I mean, then, you're going to have I mean, to look okay. at a
2: wind turbine. I, I, I like ever, the idea of wind turbines. I think they're kind of cool looking. I've seen in yeah, uh, right. like I, the Pyrenees I agree, Mountains but, in northern Spain, is there's hundreds of them, and I have drove the highway, and I, I just thought it was really cool looking. Right, right. Uh, I But then I, you have the Kennedys, who are the right. strong environmentalists, who are fighting that farm right off of their uh, Nantucket, hideaway yeah
1: no i know it's there's ridiculous. the hypocrisy it's ridiculous. that makes me mad if you're demanding right that is hypocrisy there's no doubt about it makes Good. me mad too i mean that you know you can't <laughs> you can't behave like that come on man that's that's ridiculous. Okay, Alan, I, I like you. I, I tell, you're making sense. You're at least my,
2: admitting the truth that the Kennedys are
1: whacked out about. Yeah, they are, are whacked out. Anyway. They, they are whacked out. So I I tell my I tell my, my my kids, my students, I teach at the new school. I said, you don't like the sight of a windmill? Have you ever seen a strip mine? Have you ever seen the way mountain removal to get coal makes the or the, lithium. the places the lithium look?
2: For your batteries is also. The most destructive thing out there, lithium is horrible right.
1: for the world. Yeah, I know. I know. The good news is in his technology to the fore, lithium is very similar to sodium and the scientists are now working on sodium as a replacement for lithium in batteries.
2: That would be cool. We get sodium all over. I have some sodium in my kitchen.
1: Yeah, you have sodium. <laughs> We sometimes we don't have enough salt in our bodies, so we need more. <laughs>
2: yes. Well, that's the sort of thing that makes sense. Right. Alan, what's your right. stance on third generation
1: nuclear? I think third generation and fourth generation nuclear are much safer. They are uh, much smaller, so they can be used much more effectively by uh, utilities and i think that in order for us to have uh, a a safe and um a society that allows us to use our air conditioners as well as drive our cars uh, one needs to implement nuclear power
2: all right alan i like you a lot now <laughs> I, I i i'm You know, I remember Three Mile Island. I remember Jane Fonda and the China Syndrome, one of my favorite movies. I loved that movie. That was a great movie.
1: Um, It was a great movie. Terrible politics, but great movie.
2: Well, yeah. um, I used to live in Sendai in Japan, which was really, oh, wow. Tsunami. Uh, My brother used to live there. We have uh, friends there. Um, Really? Wow. Yes. So I, I can relate to that. I know some of the areas that were destroyed. I had been there. I. Been to the yeah, town, um, yeah,
1: right? It is
2: right, right. Uh, devastating that those sort of things happen, but on the other hand, I think it's ridiculous. Well, but I United show States, I show my. I, gen. I mean, what the French yeah, are doing I, now with nuclear is amazing.
1: Yeah, right, right. Well, there's some really interesting things going on, even with the current reactors that we have in operation. I show my students a graph, which is deaths per kilowatt hour of coal, oil, and solar, and nuclear. And coal is a big, big number and space on the graph, and nuclear is way down at the bottom. Even including the accidents, even including the deaths from uranium mining, I mean, coal is a disaster. Yes. Coal
2: equals millions of deaths. Yes, I I agree. Horrible.
1: Yeah, yeah. But we also, but we have to, you know, we have to worry about, okay, so we don't mine coal anymore. What, how are we going to take care of and employ the current people who mine? That Those are good union high-paying jobs, not high-paying, but adequate-paying jobs. We need to pay attention to that. We can't just say, well, shut down uh, coal plants. We have to have a plan to redo parts of the economy to be able to support those people.
2: I couldn't agree more. They, the situation in West Virginia is horrible, 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 horrible. But those people need to have jobs to make a living. I agree. Alan, one final question. I, I'm a conservative in the sense that I don't like change so much. I want the environment to stay good. I'm a Teddy Roosevelt conservative. I love the environment. I want to conserve it. And that's what I mean by conservative. I am blown away by how horrible all of our politicians are. I'm not pro-Trump, anti-Biden. I think they are all guilty of everything they're accused of. Every uh, conspiracy is probably true. I do think they're out there killing people. I think they are uh you give them the power I think they go crazy. Um I'm disgusted with all of our politicians. I don't see a single one out there doing anything honestly. Well, I tend to. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you defend any
1: uh, of them? I, I have I have I have the same kind of cynical attitude towards Politicians. Um, what I ran a nonprofit, which was a bridge between the scientific community and the media, and in so doing, I got to know personally. I mean, not not you know close friend type, but you know, a couple of members of of Congress and and senators and so forth. And I said to myself, these people are running the country. I mean, this is this is a little bit uh, ridiculous. On the other hand, I do think there are some. Honest, hardworking people trying to do a good thing. I think Bernie Sanders is one of those people. Um, uh, I think Chuck Schumer, with all of his faults, is another of those people. I do think that some people go in there because they want to do good for the public, but as a couple of friends of mine... Said uh, a di- dinner the other night. Who of us would want to run for Congress or any any other thing, um, and and do the things that you have to do? I mean, it's it's just it's a messy business. And by corrupt, I don't always mean money corrupt, but just intellectually corrupt. Yeah,
2: the hypocrisy uh, is
1: what the hypocrisy me. drives me nuts. Right? Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely true. Yep.
2: All right. Alan, I love you. You're a great, interesting man. I would love to have you a teacher at the new school, and we would have fun talking about the environment and yeah. Franz Boas and anthropology. You know, anthropology is something I never <laughs> would have thought that I would have studied in school, but I wish I had now because it's the basis, I think, of politics and Romance yeah. and religion, right. it is the core study of the human experience. And I wish I had
1: done yeah, more. I, that. I, yeah, I I, I to- totally agree. I, I, <laughs> I studied engineering at Yale, um, and I I worked as an engineer for two years after graduation, and then I decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. So I missed out on a lot of the courses that I could have taken. And I, I, I didn't know anything about anthropology when I started uh, uh, doing the, the work on Boas, which started, you know, 15 years ago. So I've, I've learned a hell of a, I'm not an anthropologist and I don't pretend to be an anthropologist, but I think anthropology has a lot of answers and asks the right questions some of the time. I agree.
2: Alan, how do we get a copy of the book? Find out more about you, follow you online, get in touch, all that, please.
1: Okay. Uh, go to www.cambridgescholarsoneword.com, or you can go to Alan H McGowan alanhmcgowan.net for my website.
2: Fantastic. Alan, congratulations on the book. I look forward to looking at it. This is one that I am going to pick up and look at because, uh, as I said, great. I want to learn the anthropology. I want to, to know this. Yeah, so,
1: yeah. I well, appreciate being you know. Us. Okay, thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. We're out of
2: time for today, but you know what we do. That's right, we come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go support nuclear energy. Have a great day. Bye now. <laughs>